0: 51 and 52, the Lord is going to bring His people to a new home, a new Eden. His salvation will last forever longer than the earth itself. God is going to take from His people this cup of wrath, that is, His anger and judgment of our sin. And though we deserve hell, His people will be redeemed. Now, the people in Isaiah's day, the people of Israel, as they stared exile in the face, or at least it was round a corner, might have looked around the world and said, really? And we, in in our day, in our age, might look around and say, really? This is what God's doing. This is what he's about. This is what he's bringing to, to pass. How? And the answer to that how is even more startling for he says through Isaiah in the first of the passages that Jim read in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, that's on the screen, he says that he's going to accomplish this, he's going to do these, fulfill these huge promises through his servant. A servant, verse 13, who will be highly exalted. A servant, verse 15, who will cleanse peoples of many nations, who will silence kings, And yet, verse 14, one who is appalling to look at, so disfigured that he's barely recognizable as a person. Now, when Isaiah first spoke about the servant in a series of what we call servant songs at the beginning of what is chapter 42, when Isaiah first spoke of the servant in chapter 42, the servant was acclaimed as God's delight. Now, in chapter 52, the, surgeon, the servant is the object of human revulsion. Yet, it's the same servant. The here is my servant of verse 1 in chapter 42 matches with the see my servant, verse 13 of chapter 53. It's the same servant. The apostle Paul highlights the same contrast, the same Uh, confusions in 1 Corinthians 1 and the other passage that Jim read. There he claims that the cross confounds human wisdom. It frustrates, too, our longing for the showy and the spectacular, yet it is, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, at one point, in the long and the involved and in the politically charged episode that led to Jesus' execution, at one point he stands before the authorities. They question him. He doesn't try to wriggle out. And in fact, when he does speak up, it's, if anything, to make matters worse for himself. And so here was a country rabbi, if he was a rabbi, no formal, no formal education or qualifications. Here is a yokel standing before the sophisticated powers of the capital city of Jerusalem, saying that though they intend to crucify him, soon he's going to be sitting on a throne beside the God of Israel, surrounded by the trappings of glory and of universal recognition. his hearers conclude that he's talking rubbish. At best, it's nonsense, and at worst, it's blasphemy. And many sins, in Jerusalem then, in the Corinth of Paul's day, in Scotland of our day, many sins across the centuries and across the continents have turned away from this gospel, this power and the wisdom of God, because it doesn't suit their own Now, crucifixion wasn't simply a way to kill people. It was tortuous humiliation and a disgrace. And to claim that one of the many people who were crucified was actually the Son of God, and that that one in being crucified was doing what wisdom and what signs and wonders could not do, that is, be a way of salvation, that just seems a contradiction in terms. It's like speaking about Fried ice. Not fried rice. Fried ice. What's that? It's like speaking about a considerate and thoughtful rapist. It's like speaking about a a generous skinflint. What is that? A crucified saviour? And to the onlookers, when Jesus was being crucified, there was nothing to suggest that his execution was any different from the many others that they were used to seeing. There was no halo around his head. There was no special glow. There were no doves flying around. just the slow, low, groaning agony of an excruciatingly painful death and yet, Isaiah prophesies, and Paul insists that that scene of devastation and failure is the very fullest picture of the power and wisdom and love of God. You see, when we try to fit God into our lives and our way of thinking, He just doesn't fit. He didn't fit in with the religious leaders of Jerusalem. He didn't fit in for the sophisticated leaders and debaters at Corinth. Nor would he have fitted for the people in Isaiah's day facing exile. And it doesn't just fit in for us either. Now, it's not the case that we have to become daft or stupid to believe the gospel. We don't say, leave your brains at the door if you want to worship. The gospel stands up to scrutiny and to good thinking. But we will never grasp the heart of the gospel if we look at it by conventional ideas of power and wisdom. We have to let God be God, accept that salvation is His work, and without our help, He does it His way. The cross shows that we misunderstand God, and the cross shows that we misunderstand ourselves. The cross shows that we misunderstand God. Generally, people suppose that God's job is to keep trouble away, to stop bad things happening, to... Intervene so that good people are okay, God people suppose is most easily or clearly seen in the in the hillsides in the places of calm and beauty, but here he is. Himself entering, the, entering into the hearts, being bullied, being on the receiving end of deceit and injustice, being tormented, suffering, and suffering for us. Here he is entering into the power politics of the Jerusalem of his day. Here is a God who exchanged the glory of heaven for the shame of a cross. Here is a God who exchanged the safety of heaven for the agony of the cross. Here is a God who exchanged the power of heaven for the weakness of the cross. And in terms of our logic, in terms of our self-interested way of seeing things, that makes no sense. We expect our leaders and indeed our deity to be above us. Hence the greetings for royalty, even in our society. Your royal highness, Sometimes disguise that by pronouncing it as highness, but the word is highness, isn't it? You're above us, you're above us. That's where the powerful should be, that's where the, the, the mighty should be, that's where the, the ruler should be. And yet says Isaiah, says Paul, says Jesus, and indeed the whole of a scripture. Here is the might of the Lord, the glory of God, the reality of God most clearly seen as this guy gets crucified, humbled and disgraced. Here the servant becomes lowly, and not for his sake, but for ours. He drinks the cup of wrath that Isaiah talked of in chapter 51, so that we don't have to. He bears sin so that his people might be forgiven. He endures judgment so that his people might be counted righteous and have that place in the new Eden. Jesus is honored, not despite his humiliation on the cross. Jesus is honored because of his humiliation on the cross. As we sang in our first hymn, this is our God. And as well as the cross showing that we misunderstand God, it shows, too, that we misunderstand ourselves. Our proud notions of power, triumph, and glory, and wisdom were turned on their heads. We think, we suppose, that we are clever enough to find out about God. We We deem ourselves clever enough to judge whether or not God makes sense. We assume that we are good enough to be with God we think, we're strong enough to please him. But the cross dismisses all of these things. God allowed his servant to serve in so lowly and in so hurtful a way because it was what we needed. It was the only way to provide what we needed. By and of ourselves, we simply are not worthy of God. Verse 15 of the passage in Isaiah speaks of kings having to shut up, because no matter how much power or influence or status or ability or wealth, whatever, they need God's salvation on God's terms. Paul says similar in his argument in in Romans at chapter 3 that the Lord condemns us and we have nothing to say in our defense. So why might you take the bread and wine of the supper today? Because you're a church member? Because you've put something in the offering? Because, all things considered, you're not a bad person? Because you've been doing your best? Well, because, well, it's there and you might as well. Because it's what you usually do and have done for years. Because, actually, none of these because none of these becauses entitles us to come. None of these because entitles us to share in bread and wine. The only possible reason is that you have nothing to say in your defense but recognize that God's servant, Jesus Christ, died for our sin. There is exaltation, verse 13 of Isaiah, which came out of God's wisdom. Notice, see, my servant will act wisely. His exaltation, which came out of God's wisdom, is an exaltation and a wisdom that is diametrically opposed to what our human nature might tell us. It was through sin-bearing sacrifice for us. And so the bread and the wine are for those who, can't look at the, who can look at the crucified Christ and say, that should have been me. I deserved that. He didn't. Confession time. I, I, have, a, I have a problem with communion. Communion. Well, actually, more accurate to say, I I have a problem um, with communion services. I have a problem with what we have made them to be. You see, the supper focuses on the servant God of Isaiah 52 and 53. The supper, supper focuses on the crucified Savior of 1 Corinthians 1. And so, the supper should take us to the cross, take us to the humiliation of the Son of God, the suffering of the Messiah, His doing that for us. Oh, but we've found ways to dress it up, to sanitize it, to make it into something safe. I'm not sure, you know, about white cloths and expensive vessels, Because our rituals, you see, have taken us away from the cross. Our rituals have become things that obscure rather than things that illuminate. Imagine a wedding. The bride's mother has been, of course, as some people do, agonizing for months over what she's going to wear for the occasion. But in the end, she's satisfied with her outfit, and on the day of the wedding, she gets dressed, and the last thing she does in preparing herself is that she puts on a brooch that she's going to wear. It's a rather rather large brooch that she puts on her jacket, and on this brooch is a picture of the mushroom cloud that was over Hiroshima. The groom's mother has also worked hard at trying to get the outfit just right. And as she finishes dressing, well, we find that she is putting on a pair of rather large earrings. And the large earrings are in the shape of, and quite clearly are, the gates of Belson concentration camp. How offensive. For a wedding... Imagine bringing up Hiroshima or the Holocaust. How inappropriate, how insensitive. But is it all that different from the common practice of having a cross as a piece of jewelry? In first century Roman Empire, the cross was every bit as repulsive an image as the atom bomb explosion or the concentration camps are to us. It was a sign of judgment, of cruelty, of contempt and hatred. And it's only because that we have become used to seeing crosses in all kinds of safe and sanitized contexts that we're not impacted by the sheer offensiveness of it. God on a cross... It is only because we have become used to seeing crosses in all kinds of safe and sanitized contexts that we don't see how ludicrous it is to have such a contemptible object, both as an adornment and, in fact, as the sign and symbol of the gospel in our salvation. And we do similar with communion, We've made it into something decent, something safe, something non-offensive, into something that doesn't shatter our notions of wisdom or decency or self-worth. But it should. It's about damnation. And the Son of God took it and took it lovingly For us. In the series we head towards Easter. So heading toward Easter do we think of holidays, bunnies, chocolate, brighter nights. Or will we approach Easter with a sense of stunned appreciation. That should have been me on that cross. But he did that. Do we approach the table thinking about order and ceremony or some kind of religious top-up medicine? Or do we think, that cross, that should have been me, but he did that. And he did that as the servant of the Lord. He did that in order that the promises of eternal salvation, the restored Eden that Isaiah has been talking about, he's done that so that the promises of liberty and fullness of life should be for those whose mouths are silenced with nothing to say for themselves, nothing to say in their own defense, and who are simply willing to embrace the wisdom of God in providing such a saviour. Now, the follow-on implications of such a Savior are many and enormous. It removes all basis for pride. It condemns our instinct to judge others. It, It speaks to our tendency to withdraw from life's challenges and hurts. It speaks to our refusals to look out for others, especially others who are other and different from us, and so on and so on. And we cannot possibly tease out all the implications at once. That is what the life of discipleship is about. The taking up your cross and following Jesus day by day. But here, now, as we come to this table, is this your God? Is meekness and majesty the one who is the wise servant, but yet who suffers, suffering, verse 14, so appalling that he's disfigured. He's the kind of person that, were this event being featured on the BBC News, they would be saying, some of these pictures you might find upsetting. And that was our God that was there. Have you recognized that, left to ourselves, we misunderstand both God and ourselves? Have we had our beliefs, our thoughts, our lives reshaped by this servant of the Lord? The jaunty tune of the Negro spiritual, I think, sometimes disguises the thrust of the verse. When in I've Got a Home in Glory Land, it says... If you will not bear a cross, you can't wear a crown. And when they wrote that, whoever wrote it, when they said, if you will not bear a cross, they weren't thinking, if you will not put on a piece of jewellery. They were saying, if you will not go the way of God the way of the suffering servant, the way of the wisdom of God, the way of the power of God, to see that sacrificing, suffering, love is salvation, not dominance, not power. To see that we don't need more and better arguments, but we need to embrace the love of God that comes to us in ways beyond what we could have expected, but ways in which we come to see is the triumph of God's love. This is our God we sang in our first hymn. Well, is it? Only those who have absolutely nothing to say about their own goodness, their own wisdom, we take bread and we take wine. Only those who can say it's not about gaining and getting, it's about giving and serving, can take bread and can take wine. Only those who recognize that these promises of the new Eden, of the eternal salvation, of the new world to come, lie on the far side of crucifixion of the Son of God. And lie on the far side of our taking up that cross daily and following. May take bread, may take wine. Let us pray.